Well, good morning and uh, welcome again uh, to Christ Community. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And I'm so glad that each of you has joined us this morning, especially if you are uh, new, if this is your first time. I know it's not easy to walk into a new church or any church for the first time. And so thanks for doing that this morning and, and do sincerely hope that you feel welcome and and that you belong uh, here with us. Well, before we uh, take a closer look at the text that Dan uh, just read for us, I'd love to just pause for a moment and, and pray and ask uh, God to help us in understanding his word as, as we look at it this morning. So let's pause and do that right now. Father in heaven, we're thankful, uh, as John said at the beginning of the, of the service, we, we love the Bible, we love the word, your word that you've given to us, and we're, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in this way. And I pray now that um, we would rely on your spirit to understand it. Um, I pray that it would do the work that you um, have for it to do in, in my life uh, this morning, as well as in each one of those uh, gathered here as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name uh, for his glory. Amen. Well, I think we've all heard it at one point or another, um, and, and probably many of us have, have even said it, if, if not thought it. Um, and it's, it's this phrase, that the church is full of hypocrites. We've all heard this, right? Um, that everyone uh, thinks, whether they're a Christian or not, everyone thinks that Christians should grow and change. I mean, even if, if you are here this morning and, and you're just checking out the church, you don't know anything really about Christianity, there's a baseline assumption that Christians should change and grow. This is the only reason that the, the church uh, is full of hypocrites, has any kind of traction um, we think that Christians are supposed to grow, they're supposed to be different, that if, if you start following Jesus, if you start becoming religious in some way, that it ought to change you. People know that Christianity is supposed to change you if you believe it, if you claim to follow it. So why is it so hard for Christians to grow? I mean, we're supposed to change when we become Christians, and yet I think most of us who, who would consider ourselves Christians at times feel like our lives are very much the same. We, we still have this problem or, or this illness or, or this struggle, and, and we reach a point where we wonder, is this really working? It, does Christianity really change people? Uh, for, for some people, this moment comes shortly after we come to faith. Things start off well, but then they seem to stagnate along the way for some reason. For others, this moment seems to kind of repeat itself over and over again based on certain habits or, or problems that we encounter. Um, for still others, this actually acts as evidence that God isn't real or that he doesn't care. And for some, this is the reason that you haven't ever come to faith. You say, I, I look at the church and they don't seem all that different from me. What do they have to offer? So, so why is growth so difficult? Why is it so hard to change? And does it really matter? Does it really matter if it's possible? Does it really matter what we believe about the Christian life, whether we can grow and change as followers of Jesus? So all this summer we've been asking that question of a lot of our beliefs. Does it really matter? And this morning we want to ask that question. Does it really matter what we believe about the Christian life, about growth in Christ? Are we missing something? 
Well, the Apostle Peter, who wrote what Dan just read for us a moment ago, gives us three things to keep in mind about the Christian life. Three things that only the gospel can give us, which are able to help us grow and change into more godly people in any time of life, at any stage of life, and no matter what is going on. Because you don't become like Jesus by accident. Nobody becomes like Jesus by accident. True growth in Christ, true, true growth in godliness, which, which simply means thinking and acting and loving and, and celebrating what Jesus loves, requires a new motivation, requires a new strategy, and requires a new purpose. So those are the three things that, that Peter shows us here this morning. A, a new motivation, a new strategy, and a new purpose for growth. And one of the greatest benefits of the good news of the gospel is that change and growth and transformation really are possible. And so first, we want to look at what is this new motivation? What's the, the new motivation that growth requires? If you look at what Peter writes in the very beginning of the text that Dan read first, beginning in verse 2, he says, May grace and peace, those are key, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus our Lord. And then he continues, he says, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The word excellence, you could also translate virtue. It's the same word down earlier, later on. By which he granted us very precious and great promises so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in these verses, what Peter's doing is he's celebrating all that we have in Christ, all that we've received in and through Jesus. He says we've got grace and peace that his divine power has granted us everything, all things that we need to grow for life and godliness. He's given us his precious and very great promises. He's given us so much. But the question is, what is the, what's the why of all this? Why has he given us these things? Well, we see it in verse 4 with two little words, so that. The, the so that tells us the reason why, the purpose. And so what is it? Peter says that we would share in the goodness and the glory of the one who called us. That, that we would escape, that we would flee and, and turn our backs on the sinful desires that are corrupting and destroying us. In other words, the goal is growth, it's, it's change, it's transformation. But at one level, this is hardly unique to Christianity, right? I mean, most religions and, and even many irreligious people who wouldn't claim a faith would say, we want to grow and change. If I were to say, think of one thing you want to change about your life right now, I think all of us could name something we want to be different. So, so the goal of growth or change isn't necessarily unique to Christianity, I mean, we have thousands upon thousands of, of, of self-help books and DVDs and, and, and videos, right? We want to change. But what's unique about Christianity is not that it, it aims at change, but the motivation that it gives for that change. You see, in every other religious or irreligious framework, the motivation for growth is rooted in fear and pride. This is a great insight that, that the uh, great American philosopher and, and theologian Jonathan Edwards had, and I uh, recently heard Tim Keller kind of unpack this distinction between true virtue and common virtue 
what lies at the heart of so much of our motivation is fear and pride. So, so let me explain what I mean by this. So take honesty, for example. Why should we be honest as people? Well, often we say, well, you should be honest and not tell lies. When we come with that from a framework of, of our default setting being fear and pride, what's the motivation? Well, we say you shouldn't tell lies because you might get caught. Right? It's better to tell the truth because if you tell a lie, you might risk getting caught, get found out, and then the consequences would be worse than if you had told the truth. So it's fear of getting caught that keeps you from lying. So one of the ways that we say, oh, well, you shouldn't tell lies is your fear of getting caught. What's the other way? Well, it's rooted in pride. I'm better than that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better person. I'm not the kind of person who lies. I'm, I'm an honest person. Lies are beneath me. I, my character is better than that. So our reason for not lying is rooted in our pride. I'm, I'm a better person than that. I don't, I'm not the kind of person who lies. So fear and pride at one level are really helpful at modifying our behavior for a period of time. But here's the, the crux of the matter. Here's the problem of it. Why is the reason that any of us lies? Fear and pride. We lie because we're afraid or we lie because we're, we're prideful. So why do we lie on a job application? Because we're afraid that if we told the truth, we wouldn't get hired. So, so fear drives the lie. Or, or what's another reason we, we would, might lie on a job application? Well, maybe we think, I deserve to make more money at this job than I did at my, my last job. And so out of pride, we exaggerate our work experience or we inflate our previous salary. So in the end, fear and pride always collapse in on themselves because the only reason that we ever lie is because of fear and pride. And so at some point it breaks down. But fear and pride are really effective at modifying behavior for a period of time. This is why as, as parents, we can so often turn to fear and pride to, to modify the behavior of our kids because it actually does work for a time. But it will always collapse in on itself at some point. This also means that even if we do a right action, if that action's motivated by fear and pride, we're still not escaping sin because our motivation is self-centered, rooted in the pride and fear that we have. But the gospel provides an entirely new motivation for growth. God's salvation in Christ, the good news, empowers our faith and our growth God makes us precious promises about who we are and what he thinks about us. And, and our joyful response to those promises is obedience. Not because, uh, not because of fear and pride, but what we joyfully obey for its own sake, simply because of the love we have for the one who's called us. So unlike other religions and worldviews where the motivation is fear and pride seeking approval, gospel obedience is a response to approval. See, every other framework says, if I do these things, then I'll be accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted in Christ because of what he's done for me. Therefore, I can respond in obedience out of joy. A, a great picture of how this works um, is, is preparing for a wedding, actually. 
So we do a lot of weddings in this, in this building, and there's always a ton of preparation that goes into a wedding, right? If, you, if you've ever been in a wedding, if you've ever participated in the planning of, what, of a wedding, you know there's a massive amount of work that goes into getting ready for a wedding. There's places to be booked, there's d- dresses to be picked out, decorations to be designed, hotels to be booked. It's a ton of work to get ready for a wedding. The moment that the engagement ring is on the finger, a flurry of activity is unleashed. Now, you prepare extensively for your wedding because your spouse had says, yes, I'll, I'll marry you. Not because you're trying to get them to say yes. Right? An effective proposal doesn't go along these lines. You don't say, well, I think I'd like to marry you, so let's plan a wedding and then we'll kind of see how you look on the day and, and if the decorations are kind of up to par. And, and if it's good enough, then, then I'll go through with it. We don't say, yeah, let's see how well the ceremony is planned and then I'll decide if you're good enough for me. No, not at all. Your spouse has already said you're good enough for me. They already want to marry you. That's why you're doing all the work to plan the wedding. That's how it is in our life with Christ. He's already said, yes, I accept you. I love you based on the work that I've done. Therefore, we can joyfully respond in obedience to him. So what's your motivation? Nobody becomes like Jesus by accident. Our motivation is everything. And if you get this wrong, you won't grow. In fact, many of you aren't growing because maybe you've actually at the end of the day, you haven't really understood the good news of the gospel that you are accepted. Your motivation is, is still based in, in fear and pride. And so it's, it's always going to supplant the growth that you might have. You may change some behavior patterns, but you will simply be substituting one way of living the way you want for another way. And you aren't ever really responding out of joyful obedience. You aren't truly loving God for his own sake. So is your motivation fear or love? Is it it pride or joy? The good news of the gospel is that as, as a free gift, we are given everything necessary for life and godliness. We have the Holy Spirit, we have scripture, we have the local church community. We have everything we need. Not necessarily everything we would want, but we have everything we need. But if that's true and we understand our motivation correctly, then why is it still so hard sometimes to grow and to change? Why don't we see more growth in our lives? Well, the answer is not only do we need a new motivation, but we also need a new strategy. Because again, nobody becomes like Jesus by accident. So what is, what's the strategy? Look at verses 5 through 10. Peter continues. He says, for this very reason, that the reason is what he's just stated, this motivation, this having everything we need. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And he says, for if these qualities, all the ones that he's just listed there, if those are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter calls us here to adopt a new strategy for growth. And notice what Peter gives here isn't a list of do's and don'ts. 
And the Bible contains framework for, for our character development or, or for the kinds of things we should and shouldn't do, certainly. But what Peter lists here is not a, a things that we should or shouldn't do. He lists the kind of person we ought to be. You see, because Christianity is first and foremost about who we are, not what we do. It's first and foremost about who we are that leads to a transformed way of living. It, it transforms what we do. But being comes first. It's transformation from the inside out. So what he gives us here is not a list of do's and don'ts, but a list of the kind of person we're becoming, we ought to be becoming in Christ. And Peter calls us to work. He calls us to work hard. He says, make every effort. Not in order, again, to be accepted, but because we are accepted. Grace, we talk about this a lot at Christ Community, grace is fundamentally opposed to earning. Grace by its very nature is a gift. It's something we don't deserve. We could never earn. But grace is not opposed to effort. In, in fact, grace fuels our every effort. It fuels the work that we do here. To What Peter says, to supplement our faith. That's kind of an, an interesting turn of phrase. What does it mean to supplement our faith? And this word, actually, it has a fascinating background. It, it originally was rooted in the context of kind of the of ancient Athens in, in Greece. And in, in Athens, they would have these big drama productions that they would put on. And in these productions, there would be a rich individual who would partner with a poet and kind of with the state, the city, to put on this play. And, and while this was a massive expense for whoever, whoever was the patron to put this on, Wealthy people would compete for who would get to pay, for who would get to support the play. It was a great honor. And so scholar Michael Green explains, thus the word, this word supplement, came to mean a generous and costly cooperation. And he says the Christian must engage in a sort of, this sort of cooperation with God in the production of the Christian life. You see, we never get beyond the gospel but through faith, we go deeper into the gospel and see how it speaks to every part of our lives. And we round out our faith. We supplement our faith with the qualities that Peter mentions here, as well as many others that are celebrated in other passages of Scripture. So, so what is the significance of the ones that, that Peter lists here? And, and I should say, before I go too much further into talking about these specific lists of virtues, it, it's a little bit, it's easy for me to stand up here and, and feel a little bit like someone who's a, a chain smoker talking about how important it is to quit smoking. Um, I, I don't want you to think as we talk about these virtues that somehow I've got this all together. None of us have arrived. We're all, we're all growing in these things. But, but Peter gives us this list, and actually they're more of a kind of a chain, a link of chains being linked together rather than a ladder. So it's not as though, you know, once you've gotten virtue down, then, then you add, go on to add knowledge, and once you've checked off knowledge. No, it's, it's more of like these things are being linked together in a chain. We're working on them all simultaneously. And, and virtue simply means goodness, excellence of character. Growing Christians, are, are, they're marked by honesty and generosity, kindness, courage, patience, a refusal to give up in the face of adversity. There's an excellence of character, of virtue about them. Next, Peter, Peter mentions knowledge. And while this certainly includes academic knowledge, Christianity is a thinking faith after all. It's not merely limited to sort of academic 
knowledge. We often think of knowledge as sort of facts and data, but knowledge is personal, it's relational. And all throughout 2 Peter, knowledge is knowledge of a person, knowledge of Jesus. It implies a relationship. So next, Peter says, to knowledge we link up self-control. Self-control is simply, a great definition of self-control is it's the being able to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. Self-control is being able to choose what is right over what is easy. Choosing what is best over what is convenient. And to this we add steadfastness. Steadfastness, it's, it's simply stick to it in this. <laughs> endurance, perseverance. Godliness is the quality of being devoted, being passionate about who God is in a way that that transforms how you live life. And to these, the kind of the crown of all this, we add brotherly affection and love. You see, the pinnacle of biblical Christian maturity is not Bible information It's not church attendance. It's not even serving or giving, though though it is nearly impossible, if not impossible, to even mature without those things. But the pinnacle of Christian maturity is love, sacrificial love for other people. So how do we grow in these things? How do we actually make progress in them? What's the methodology? What's the strategy? How does it happen? Well, before I get into the answer to that question, I want to point out three problems or three misunderstandings that we often encounter as we're trying to grow that that can undermine the strategy to grow. And and the first is that often we think that growth is secondary or optional. But but if we treat growth as secondary or optional in the Christian life, it's like treating saving for retirement as secondary or optional. It just isn't going to happen. Right? I mean, if, if saving up for the future is, is just something, well, it's kind of secondary, it's optional, there's always something more pressing that's going to vie for those dollars in our budget, isn't it? You have to view it as essential. So long as you see it as, as secondary, it's never going to happen. A, a second thing that often undermines our strategy for growth is that we view growth as being magical. Well, let me explain what I mean by that. It, it, we just say, like, well, somehow if we just believe enough that that will just automatically somehow just be transformed. The, the mantra of kind of the magical view of growth is just let go and let God. That God makes me grow and, and I don't do anything to participate. And if I just believe sincerely enough or if I just believe hard enough or if I just kind of say the right prayer, then one morning I'm just going to wake up and I'm not going to struggle anymore. Sin and temptation aren't going to be an issue and I, I'm just fully mature like that. How is that working for us? Third, and and I actually think this is really common in churches like ours where we rightly have a strong view of of sin and and brokenness. And that is we, we don't think that growth is really possible. We rightly recognize that we are deeply broken, flawed people. But sometimes because of that, we, we think that growth isn't actually possible. We know we can't earn our salvation. We know that Jesus had to die to save us. And, and so we think that, that all of our attempts at, at righteousness, of, of living a right life, that they're all just filthy rags. So why even try? I can't do anything good. 
But this error confuses perfection with obedience. Uh, Let me say that again. This error confuses perfection with obedience. It's true that in this life we will never be fully perfect and that we can't earn favor with God. But that doesn't mean that we can't grow in obedience. Indeed, we must. We can grow in obedience. So often we confuse perfection with obedience. We can never be fully perfect in this life, but we can be growing in obedience. Okay, so you're probably sitting there, all right, great, Bill. You've been hanging out there for a while, but what about the strategy? You keep mentioning the strategy. What is it? (laughs) Tell me how this works. And this is the point where where all of us are hoping that there's this magic bullet that's coming that's just going to make this work like it's never worked before in our lives. And so now that I've built up all this anticipation, this is the moment where I get to disappoint you and and let you down. Um, Because the strategy is practice. The strategy is practice. What makes the difference in growth is practice. Now, uh, we're here and we're Americans. And, and we don't really like that very much because we like things quick and we like them easy. If there is a surgery for it or a pill we can take, we're, we're on it. Um, we're not into long, drawn-out processes. We don't like waiting for stuff. Um, we like fixes that are quick. And, and I think back at my own life and how prone I am to this way of thinking I mean, I know none of you can relate to this, but there's been times in my life where, where I have thought, man, if, now that I've got this new Bible with study notes, now I'm really going to read the Bible and it's just going to be, it's going to be, everything's going to be better now. I've got this, this new Bible. Or now that I've got this new Moleskine journal, um, rather than that old spiral bound one, now I'm really going to start journaling and my, my time with God each morning is just going to, it's going to be so much better now. Or if I could just find the right devotional book or the right Bible study or the right podcast, then, then I won't struggle with temptation anymore. I mean, how many times have I been around that process in my life? But, but that's not biblical faith. That's not where character comes from. Character is formed by our habits, by our practices, what we do over and over again. Actually, increasingly, neuroscience is even demonstrating that these practices, these habits, not only sort of change our patterns of thought, but they actually rewire the, the physicality of our, of our brain, the way it works. Disciplines like prayer and Bible reading, serving, giving, solitude, community, all of these done over and over again, whether we feel like them or not in the moment, whether we see incident results or not in the moment, is what leads to growth over a lifetime. But growth not only requires practice, it also requires that we maintain the proper perspective on that strategy of practice. Because if we don't have the right perspective as we think about that strategy, we're going to grow weary and we're going to lose heart and we're going to feel defeated. So there's at least three things we need to keep in mind in order to have a, a proper perspective on growth. The first is priority. We've kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but this is the only way this strategy will work is if you make it a priority in your life. If growth isn't a priority, it's just not going to happen. It has to be central. You don't make margin for growth in your life. You make margin for everything else until this becomes the core 
if it remains on the periphery, it's never going to have a lasting effect. Peter says, make every effort for this. Second, we must keep in mind that, that it's, it's a process. It, it's, not, uh, it's not perfection. It's a process. So remember, we're striving for growing obedience. And Peter says that if these qualities are yours and increasing, you will have healthy growth. But this is where it's also really important to remember that we all grow at different rates and we all are starting from different places. This is really, really important to remember as Christians as we seek to follow Christ, is we all grow at different rates. Some of us grow faster, some of us grow slower. Some of us will have seasons of really intense growth and then there'll be times of slower growth. And we all have different starting places And this is why very often you find that there are Christians who behave worse than people who don't follow Christ. Listen to how C.S. Lewis explains this. I think it's so helpful. He says, Christian Mrs. Bates, so there's this woman, he says, Christian Mrs. Bates may have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Mr. Firkin. But he says that by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. He says, the question is what Mrs. Bates' tongue would be if she were not a Christian and what Mr. Firkins would be if he became one. Mrs. Bates and Mr. Firkin, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management if they will allow it to do so. What you have a right to ask is whether that management, if allowed to take over, improves the concern. Lewis continues, he says, everyone knows what is being managed in Mr. Firkin's case is much nicer than what is being managed in Mrs. Bates. That is not the point. (laughs) To judge the management of a factory, Lewis says, you must not consider only the output, but the plant. Considering the plant at factory A, it may be a wonder that it turns out anything at all. Considering the first class outfit at factory B, its output, though high, may be a great deal lower than it ought to be. Lewis concludes this with this. He says, no doubt the good manager at factory A is going to put in new machinery as soon as he can, but that takes time. In the meanwhile, low output does not prove that he is a failure. We all begin at different places. The gospel isn't about making nice people. It's about making new Creatures. It's about making dead people alive. Finally, we must also know that growth is a process. Whether you are a new Christian or a very mature one, Peter gives us this list. He gives you this list to grow in. He doesn't say, well, this is the list for you know, your first year of being a Christian. He gives us this list for the entirety of our, of our lives. No one has arrived. Your work is never done. And actually, this is the, the thing that I don't think we often expect and I think trips us up. Actually, it tends to get harder and harder to grow the further you grow. The more mature you become, it actually becomes harder to grow. And this may sound counterintuitive at first, but but think about playing a video game. When you first start the game, it's pretty easy, right? I mean, think about it. When you first start playing a video game, it's not that hard. The more you advance in the game, does the game get easier or does it get harder? 
No, the more you play the game, the game becomes more difficult. At first, in the first few levels, right, the enemies, they're really big and slow and they're easy to defeat. And even though you're just begun playing the game, you actually win all the time. It's not that hard. But as you advance in the game, the enemies are faster, they're clever, they're, they're much harder to defeat. And even though you've become a lot better at playing the game, you actually lose a lot more. This is exactly how Christian work, growth works, do you see? You see, at, at the beginning, it's relatively easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's relatively easy, for example, to stop yelling at your spouse or at your kids. It's much harder to stop thinking resentful thoughts about them. And it's harder still to become a truly patient person who isn't angry. You see, the more you grow, actually, the the levels get more difficult, the more complex, and you actually lose a lot more. But don't be discouraged. It's actually a sign that you're growing. It's evidence of growth. It's evidence of the process at work. So what's your strategy? If we don't become like Jesus by accident, then what's your strategy? Do you have one? Is, is it working? Peter says that these disciplines, these principles, they keep us from being ineffectual or unfruitful. And the implication of that is that if we aren't putting effort into our Christian life, our default mode is ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. That's the, that's the default of our life. It's, it's not just a possibility that, oh, you might end up ineffective or unfruitful. But no, if we're not striving after growth, that's, that is what's going to happen. I recently read a book uh, called What's Best Next? How the Gospel Transforms How You Get Things Done. It's a phenomenal book. I'd highly recommend it. And, and in it, the author, Matt Perman, reminds us that there's a difference between being productive and being effective. Productivity is about getting things done. Effectiveness is about getting the right things done. And in the book, Matt includes a quote from Tim Kizar. And Tim writes, Our greatest fear as individuals and as the church should not be of failure, but of succeeding in things that don't really matter. Let me read that again. Our, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Growth matters because it keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. But it's not enough to, to have the right motivation and strategy. We still need to know the purpose of holiness and growth. And we see it in verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, there is a purpose to our growth, and we can't miss it, or we will stop growing. The, the goal of this whole thing is, is that our, of, our, of our new motivation, of our new strategy, is this, to become the sort of people who want to live in Jesus' kingdom. Christ is using our motivation and our strategy to make us people who want his kingdom, who want his reign, who love what he loves. When God says, be holy, he isn't just testing us. He's actually preparing us. He's preparing us for something Jesus loves patience, kindness, self-control, affection, steadfastness. He loves those things. That's who he is. 
And he's training us to be the kinds of people who love those things also. And this is vital because as the great 19th century English Catholic priest John Henry Newman said, even supposing a man of unholy life were to enter heaven, he would not be happy there. So it would not be a mercy to permit him to enter or remain. You see, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is the consummate coupling of holiness and happiness. And our holiness opens up a world of pleasure that only a growing Christian can enjoy. The pleasure of service, the pleasure of community, the pleasure of godly love. Heaven, our Christ, in our Christ kingdom, that's where holiness and happiness meet. Christian growth is preparing us to be the kind of people that want heaven, that want to be with Christ. So is the church full of hypocrites? At one level, absolutely it is. I mean, but, but so is the whole world. None of us lives up to the standards we set for ourselves. None of us do all that we say we want to do. But in Christianity, you find not only the resources to help you grow and change, but you also find the resources to deal with failure when you invariably stumble in this growth process. You see, Jesus' substitutionary death rescues us and makes forgiveness possible. His victorious resurrection assures our victory and future entrance into his kingdom. His righteousness is credited to us, making even our imperfect obedience glorious and wonderful and complete. And it's when we forget these things that we stop growing. We must constantly and remember to go back to the gospel if we're going to keep growing. Notice what Peter says. He says about those who are ineffective and unfruitful. He says they have forgotten they were cleansed from their former sins. They've forgotten the gospel. So remember who you are. Remember that you have been cleansed from your sin. Jesus and the gospel of the forgiveness of sins is the beginning and the middle and the end of Christian living and growth. As the hymn writer puts it, and when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall repeat. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would have that gospel of the forgiveness of sins and the transforming power of the Spirit at the, at the bright center of our lives. I pray that we would be a people, a, a church family that's marked by these things, that, that we would have them and that they would be increasing in our lives. Help us to grow together in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. Amen. Well, each week here at the Brookside campus, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion as a tangible reminder of the gospel. And that's it, why we do it every single week, is that we never get past the gospel. And so in celebrating communion, it's this visible, tangible reminder of the good news of the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. After supper, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he says, this is the blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus invites us to do this in remembrance of him. And so if you're new here, let me explain how we go about this. There's four communion stations around the room. There's two in the back and there's two here in the front. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion, but if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at his table. Um, this table here has gluten-free communion elements in the back, so feel free to use that one if you need that. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're like, I'm just not sure about this, I'm newer, I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing this, that's totally okay. We're so glad you're here. Just to use this time to think, pray, reflect. Um, ask Jesus to show himself to you. So when you're ready, come, take the bread, dip it in the juice, partake together in a group, enjoy the good news that your sins have been forgiven and you have been set free. Come when you're ready.